So what even is real anymore? And what if, in trying to work that out, we discover the question doesn't make sense in the way we thought it did? This is the second episode featuring two guests who had so much to offer, we decided to divide our discussion into two parts. Our conversation features Claudia Sandberg, scholar and filmmaker from the University of Melbourne, and Bernd Bozel, philosopher and media scholar from the University of Potsdam. You'll also hear us, the Real Is Not Real Enough team, Chris Muller, Ben Nickel, and me, Helen Wolfenden. If you haven't heard the first episode of this kind of mini-series we've created, have a listen to Romans, Hitler, Hollywood, where we talk about heritage cinema and notions of truth. In this episode, we'll develop those ideas and extend them into talking about exile, shame, and the connection between humour and pain. And we'll continue our tradition of including excerpts of the diary where they're referred to. This is the final instalment of our conversations that we recorded as part of our creative research process and as a format we developed for interdisciplinary exchange. But never fear, we'll be back with more fresh takes on this work. As Ben, Chris and I were preparing for this discussion you're about to hear, one of the key words we bandied around was authenticity. Is authenticity something singular or are there different kinds? Has it got to do with feeling? And who gets to judge? Does the idea of authenticity actually help us navigate some of these tricky corners of truth that we're trying to unpack? From Chris's point of view, not so much. I suddenly realised behind these simple words, words that are written, there is this complete abyss that will swallow you up if you look into it. (laughs) Because it's kind of saying the moment the copy becomes more more pragmatically real, more influential, more meaningful than the real, not only has reality been disvalued, it's just no longer that meaningful. So in a very strange way, I think there is something to do with exile here. In a world in which films are super influential and show us reality, we who aren't in films are all exiles of this film world. We, when we appear in the flesh, (laughs) are quite you know, quite disappointing, perhaps. We need to kind of narrate ourselves in this cinematic way, produce these copies of ourselves and mythologize, anthologize, narrate our lives. And we do so using these templates, right? The templates that are hanging around in this palace. I mean, that's probably what makes the comedy. It's so recognizable, but it's also so recognizable in its absurdity. It's like, he says at some point, when he talks about the nuns, maybe this is a good place to get to the nuns, when he says, oh, I don't know why there's these nun costumes hanging in this, uh, in this costume palace. He says, well, maybe it's like, you know, literally Hotel California. Once you check in, you can never leave, right? Once these costumes have been entered into the palace, they will for always be there. <coughs> Some costumes kept in the palace are beyond strange. Like the ten Carmelite nuns. Big and very big sizes made 1930. Incredibly dusty. They made me clean them all day. While I was working on them with my carpet beater, I really couldn't imagine what kind of film could feature ten such sisters. Who needs a gang of big and very big nuns? What a pointless question. As pointless as questioning why ten nun costumes even exist. 
there are unemployed people, so there must, of course, also be unemployed things. And in a sense, that's what happens to us all now, right? There's these films that are creating meaning. There's the endless remakes of the same kind of things. And we somehow can't check out of this world anymore because we now live in this world in which film shapes how we view reality, film distortions of films, the fictions of films become the measure with which we view our own lives, realities. And I think that's one of the things that Anders kind of says very explicitly in his work, but it's actually really hard for me to understand. And for me, the fascination working with that has been, you know, you sit in a meeting or you go shopping or and suddenly you realize you're doing it internally. You're caught in this kind of mode of experience that I would call like cinematic or like you're like an audience to your own life. I think, Ben, what do you say? You're an extra in your own life? <laughs> an extra in your own life. And if you be careful, you get recast. That's, <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Can I pick up on this discussion and, and uh, ask a question to Claudia specifically? Because you mentioned uh, Baudrillard. Um, so uh, do, you, do you see um, a connection between Günther Anders and uh, Short Baudrillard here? Because um, it made me think of it again when Chris was talking about once you enter this uh, fake world, you can't leave again. In fact, I believe that once registered in this place, There is no escape. Such is the iron law of the costume palace. It applies to my nuns just as it applies to more fortunate, I should say more employable costumes. The ten nuns can only go the way of all cloth when ten brand new costumes are supplied to exist in their place. But does being replaced by something identical really mean salvation? Would this really mean that ten new costumes are taking over? Or have the same old ones simply come back again? Um, it, it made me think of Baudrillard's um, concept of the, of the simulacrum that, you know, that it kind of it becomes so real that it, you, know, you, you cannot um, distinguish it from from the original anymore or it just kind of completely eats up that that original and i think this is something that that Anders picks up on here um not picks up on it because you know he's saying this much earlier that history constantly gets rewritten and um authority changes you know once the generation before you has died then of course you are the master and you can say something without the time witness and zeitzeuge is not present anymore. Uh, and so th th in, in that sense, authenticity is completely obsolete. I think, you know, you can completely forget about authenticity. It's never been there and it will not be there. And it's, it's not even important, I suppose. And I think also when, when Chris said about exile, I think, you know, that's, that's what I see the most in this text, kind of exile, exile cinema, um, the existence of the emigre and this, This reinvention to having to invent yourself, that is captured also in the form of the text. The faster that Europe is laid to waste by war, the more systematically its originals are buried by rubble. The more valuable the fool's gold here becomes. Who knows? Perhaps the best years of our costume palace still lie ahead, as a 
home of genuine articles? It all depends on Hitler, on what he spares over there. I can already picture the palace as a kind of Louvre. How teachers are trying to marshal packs of school kids and toddlers into it. I can hear the shushing, the calls for respectful silence as groups are introduced to these hallowed halls. Just as we felt silent back then in time immemorial, was it Breslau or Berlin? As we stood at the threshold of the Hall of Antiquities for the first time, where Greek sculptures were awaiting us. Sculptures that were probably chipped plaster casts made from Roman copies. You know, he is dis discussing or criticizing American pop culture, but in a way, it, the text is also written as a sort of, you know, popular kind of text. You can read it really easily. It is, you know, it's not something that is, uh, that, that, that's high culture. It's not very, it's complex, but, you know, you're on, a, on a certain level, you can understand it and you can just kind of read on. It is entertaining, um, I would say. And also... The humor that he's using is also some sort of distanciation effect. It's kind of also a kind of a distance to himself, to his own pain, I suppose. You know, it, it enters at certain points in the text again and again, but, but it is also to make himself laugh and others laugh because that's the only thing you have in that sort of existence, which is really bitter because you don't know what your family is doing. You don't, don't have any idea if your friends are still alive. War is on in Europe and they are all, what is, he used the word, um, abschlachten, they are butchering themselves. And that word enters the text again and again. And, and in that sense, you know, reinvention is something that I, I see. And that performative effect there. Um, Chris, you said at the beginning, um, he is a character in his own text. And I think, yes, kind of that performance I see here as well. I mean, there's something really interesting, and this might be a moment to to mention the book that Bernd reviewed. I have it here, <laughs> which has these amazing film scripts in it that Anders was writing in 1941. And I, when I try to think, how can I frame this text? And And then I found all these film scripts. Oh, I, I didn't find them, I have to say. Um, Kirsten Putz, a great Anders expert uh, in Vienna, she alerted me to these film scripts. And they're all about exaggeration. And they're all about humor. They're all about surrealism. They're, they're suggestions for new types of pictures, he calls them. So, so they're all about how could you use the, the camera to do something with film that film isn't yet doing. Film is positioning us as an audience and it's giving us this visual mastery over what we see. This is his analysis of 1940s cinema. He says, well, but you could use the camera in a different way. You could be a man without face. The audience could look straight through the head of someone, of the main character, and you would never see the main character. You would only see the hands. And that would be very unsettling, even though it's more realistic. And the other one is the if genre, right? What would the world be like if this had happened in the past? And of course, these are all motifs that appear in the diary. Techniques as narrative written techniques. But the one I think, Claudia, that really gets back to exile is this idea of the caricature, um, where he wanted to exaggerate a new type of of cartoon, but it's more like a caricature. It's not like the child's genre. It's for, for adults. 
And it's kind of presented as this resistance, this act of resistance against an all-powerful force. The only resistance you have is to laugh at it. The film ideas don't, in my opinion, develop further into film scripts, so I don't know, maybe they did. Um, but I think they really shaped the way he writes. So, and I think they really shaped the way he's telling this story. So I think laughter and exile is exactly this, this really central thing that I think you you put like your finger right on, on it, I think, when you were saying this pain and what is happening in Europe. That's such an important thread. Yeah, that's that's really interesting what Chris says because uh, Günther Anders has been uh, read for decades as uh, this very dark philosopher, maybe sarcastic, yes, of course, uh, but uh, also on the verge of being cynical towards uh, what happens to Earth in the atomic age when we are all doomed and the apocalypse has uh, in some way already started. Um, so um, uh, viewing him or rereading Anders from this point of view of laughter, as a, not just as an element of, of thinking, uh, but also as a method of thinking. So a really new approach, I would say. Having read these uh, caricatoon uh, pieces from the 1940s myself, I think it's, uh, it's really worthwhile uh, pursuing this task of setting the Anders picture straight because there's still a lot to do um, in regard of uh, Anders' scholarship. And I think we have to review uh, what he actually did and what he tried to achieve, being such an outside philosopher in some way. No, I thought uh, this idea about the human, it, and then um, Claudia brought that up about you know, this, this pain, and I thought it's, um, he's exiling reality. And I think any good stand-up comedian, you know, they, they're kind of exiling pain, or any humorist, and they, 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 they kind of, bring it back up, <laughs> like they've learned over years and years of collecting pain. I think Sammy Davis Jr., a couple of really great American stand-up artists, they always say, you need to suffer at least 10 years, like 10 really horrible shit years until you become a good comedian because you can draw on the pain and you can draw it up from the place of exile and, and bring it up and entertain people with it. When Chris showed me the text, and this is why I really loved it, and I, I've been talking his ears off with that, I think if you watch like Big mainstream comedy, like particularly like queer minority study, um, kind of subversive comedy, that's it. They, they thrive on pain. They have been exiled and they're drawing on that experience of being cast aside. Like during the AIDS epidemic, like during all the, the anti-gay you know, um, periods in American history. And then particularly that, I think, comes up. And he kind of aligns himself with that pain and becoming this like, profound, true humor in the, um, the human condition almost, I thought. Any good Jewish stand-up comedian, there's a lot of good ones out there right now. I'm starting from my Brooks to um, Sarah Silverman, and they really tap into that. And it's the experience of profound exile and not being wanted by society. And with Anders, I think him not being wanted by German culture, basically, and him being cast aside, and then he finds himself in this thing about, in Hollywood, and it's all about, you are what you make yourself out to be. And it's, you know, streets are paved with gold, and all these 1940s films is all about the right lighting is, is, you know, is everything. <laughs> I think the way that this kind of merges with the exile is, is just really fascinating. Bernd, I agree with you. There should be more scholarship on that because it's, I find it just so fascinating, like how you can tap into that and still straddle this like pop thing. So we've talked about laughter and pain. So for Anders, I think the way I just came across Anders was he wrote a lot about shame and humiliation, and that was the topic of my PhD. Uh, so I encountered him first and foremost as a 
philosopher who took this feeling of humiliation dead serious. He kind of rewrites German philosophy by saying, oh, they all want to talk about anxiety and all this thing. What they should really write about is this kind of sense of charm or um, this pathology of being forced to be ourselves. So we're, we're bound to our own existence. We can't escape it. But unfortunately, we witness all these other people who are not like us. So that shows us we could be entirely different. So it's like this kind of this constant pressure to make oneself, to invent oneself, to do oneself. In the diary, you know, he presents himself as this completely humiliated person who, you know, no one wants to know him because he's so lowly, as you, you know, to come back to that scene, Claudia, that you were saying. In short, R is part of the palace elite. And at every possible occasion, he lets his status show. This became evident this afternoon, When I strayed into the vicinity of his exclusive crew, I was struggling with my assorted cleaning equipment and fighting with the metal snake of my vacuum cleaner. Clearly, the poor fellow was mortified that he might have to admit an association with someone like me in front of his subordinates. It's the perfect movie dream, right? If I'm humiliated all day, I can watch a movie and be a hero. For me, there's this kind of weird connection between shame, laughter, and pop culture that I'm, I've been circling around ever since I met Ben. And he was like, oh, but all pop culture has this kind of strange connection. It's not, it's not that unique. And I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. I can see it everywhere. I've been telling you again and again, uh, watch Drag Race. And if you watch RuPaul, and, you know, like it is, I think Anders, to me, is like the Promethean sort of shame comedian This is like the first time I really thought about shame as like the essential element of comedy because it's actually always trying to bridge that gap between that thing on the other side, that the one that you comedy against, that one that you laugh against, that the one that you try sort of to balance out the odds and say, this is like that sad, shameful thing, but how can I kind of, you know, um, survive it, go across that divide? I thought that was, um, to me, like a, a really interesting bit about how shame actually underpins all of that humorous thinking because it's always kind of like your, your energy that you draw on. I was just thinking when Chris said, it's a fall from grace, it's a fall to earth, and you can just see this in, uh, in, in this text, Leichenwäscher. And I, I think it's also the tension between humor and pain and, and humiliation. I think first you have to, of course, make that step, to be open about it and to, to surrender to it kind of in a public way. Because I think kind of that first probably is kind of to sit at home and to cry about your life and to cry about your existence and uh, and whatever happened to you. And, and I think we all did that. And then kind of going that next step to use this in your writing, in your work, in a way to make money with it, but also to survive to kind of surrender to it and to just show, you know, this is the way it is. I'm an intellectual and I'm here and I'm cleaning the dishes or the rooms or, or the costumes. It takes a lot of courage at the same time. And this becomes a very, very important thing. I mean, this is the one thing that really sets Anders apart, is that he will retell precisely these things he says oh you always say i'm influenced by that no my thinking is influenced by cleaning dishes by working in the tuna factory by you know being 
the lowly house teacher of some whatever by through these humiliations that none of you at universities know. He stays in the circle of famous German academics who are all famous professors. And he's, he's got this lifelong, you all don't know what you're talking about, even though everyone reads your books. <laughs> it's this strange tension. And I mean, in a sense, we're back to the topic of authenticity and fact and fiction and, and living that. It's, it's a truth that he can claim, right? You know, it's a particular kind of truth. And American audiences would love that. It's like them self-made man. It is like the, 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 the prototypical American story out of nothing, something. And I think that's why it's so powerful to say he, he had the American story figured out. I know that Ben might have to add something there because it's, it's such, to me, he's, he's like his messaging is on brand. I'm more American than the other Americans outside the Hollywood costume palace, which to me is the best irony there. Yeah, um, I would pick up on that um, with um, the idea of um, dealing with one's shame and um, connecting it to the, the objects that he describes, these costumes and the dialectics of making them uh, newer than you or better than they have been in the original uh, way, might this be um, some kind of, of trying to cope with shame on the American side? I mean, white Americans, of course, because there's this trope that Americans, white Americans, of course, uh, so the United States uh, of America, are, of course, culturally ashamed because they don't have history like Europeans do. And, of course, they do have a history, but it's a history of genocide and a history of slavery and so on and so on. Um, so is this some kind of a way of dealing with this cultural ingrained shame by creating a, let's say, hyper-reality to pick up on what Claudia said about uh, Baudrillard and uh, Günther Anders probably being a precursor to Baudrillard? So Americans creating this hyper-reality um, to show off and, and say, look, we, we've done it much better than it ever was and getting immersed more and more into this uh, kind of hyper-reality until you really can't leave it anymore, which is what Anders starts to describe and what Baudrillard, 30 or 40 years later on, can say, this has happened already. We are in it. We can't leave it anymore. Or is this too speculative? Or what would you say to this? Uh... I just had an idea, which is... It's one of those paradoxical things. I just remembered something that the Anders actually wrote a philosophy of clothes. <laughs> and, <laughs> really? and in it, yeah, yeah it's, uh, I, I think it's in the archives. Um, it's not been published. But um, of course, he picks up one of the fundamental motifs of German phenomenology in the 1920s was precisely this problem, what is your body? Because natural science tells you you're an animal that is naked. But nudity is an experience that can only happen once you've normalized clothes. Only people who, who see clothes as their real skin can feel the loss of that skin. They can feel humiliated, singled out when they're stripped. And that's, of course, how the diary opens. It says, you know, none of the things that is hanging around here is for warmth. It's all about intimidating others. It's all about this pomposity of having these famous rulers, these social instruments, I think he calls them. Still, there are things to learn in this new job. It makes one think about Klamotten philosophy, a clothing philosophy, or is it philosophy of clothes? We humans did not cover our nakedness because we were cold. Clothing was, no, is used to establish hierarchies, to attract 
and intimidate others. The pieces hanging in the palace are not devices to generate warmth. They are all social instruments. They serve to lend gravitas, or terrify, or enchant, or put others in their place. So in a sense, the feeling of shame is completely manufactured, right? That's what he's kind of saying, but it doesn't make it less humiliating if you're the one who's being cast out. There's nothing I can do. The world has decided I'm wearing the wrong clothes or I look the wrong way. Unless the world changes, I will never fit in. And I think this is the kind of strange exile experience that I think he's... I don't know. I think he... Claudia, you said it so wonderfully, using that pain. I think this is what I realize more and more what Anders' texts are somehow doing. They're taking this very specific historical life, this very specific historical experience of being you know, a German Jewish intellectual who is forced to leave Berlin, who, who has to leave his whole life and his whole dreams, everything behind. And then rather than dwelling on it, he translates that into a way of looking at the world as a whole, the future. In the future, this feeling is what is waiting for all of us if we're not careful about the technologies and mechanisms that can elevate some into these positions of glory where no one can be a rival. You know, that's the kind of weird paradox that he, I think, traces in later texts on cinema where he says, the problem is no one can be like a movie star. What are we doing? <laughs> you know, you cannot become this person that you're idealizing because it's, this person doesn't exist. It's a, it's an illusion. Not it's even the movie stars are like movie stars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the thing. <laughs> and and now we now we've created this conundrum for for all the Instagrammers, right? Who are kind of <laughs> they don't exist either. Claudia, did you want to? Were there some things that you wanted to tie together on the on the basis of of the things we've been talking about? I think a, a couple of things that I would wanted to point out that are just kind of picking up on threads and ideas that I had before that might or might not fit in, that um, we were earlier talking about film and illusion and, and imagination. In a way, of course, you know, that text picks is um, very well situated in its time with also Krakauer, Siegfried Krakauer's um, ideas about the danger of film, their kind of entertainment factor, but also their, how do you say this in English, verdummung, to make something that make you know people stupid. I'm thinking about the Klein Ladenmädchen, the little shop girls, this kind of essay, for example. So that, that visual culture that completely takes over, and I think... Um, from the beginning of cinema, this has been seen by kind of that intellectual scene and been, been talked about uh, since kind of 1920s um, onwards. And and in that sense, I think that uh, Anders also kind of latches on to that anxiety, talking about anxiety of the, you know, there should be an original um, and he very well, you know, fits this into this. There cannot be just one Napoleon. We need more than that because, you know, just in case he dies, what are we going to do? Because we need another one. Today, it's the three Napoleons. I'm finished with the first and the bottom half of the second, but my feelings about them are starting to change. Having more than one Napoleon makes good business sense, as one can never predict the chest and leg size of the next actor playing Napoleon. But is this practical explanation really enough to explain the existence of these three here? Their multiplication probably has a very different reason. 
anxiety. The anxiety that takes hold of us when we, the children of the age of reproduction, encounter a single copy, something unique. Having only one Napoleon? Inconceivable. I mean, make of Napoleon what you want, but just imagine what would have become of the history of the 19th century if something had happened to the guy as early as 1800 or 1801, before he rose to fame. No, I don't think we would take this risk today. And so, we now copy and mass-produce everything to ensure that we won't have to risk such avoidable loss. I know nothing happened to the man. Thank God he did his stint according to plan. But this doesn't prove anything. It was pure chance and doesn't lessen the recklessness of our ancestors. That was, you know, fantastic. I like that very much. And also, there is something, of course, in Echoes with Exiled being humiliated as something about hierarchies. In the text, of course, in our hierarchy that, you know, that is imposed on him, but it's imposed on, uh, um, on history writing as well, generations, kind of something that's coming subsequently. And also maybe the thought of freedom. Of course, we talked about limitation. We talked about exile as having to reinvent ourselves in pain. But I think also, you know, there is some sort of freedom in the way that he writes these things down and I think it does have to do with the space with the context and um, I, I think I agree with Ben here about you know becoming more American than the Americans I think you know everyone can do and say and write what they want in a way and I think he uses that and um, and he might have not been able to write this in Germany where everything is so regulated and everyone is so critical I mean in America everything is fine and that produces a very kind of fluid, very elegant, uh, very pop culture kind of, very accessible text here. They're really interesting observations. Bernd? Yes, um, um, also picking up on the form of the text and uh, the topic of exile, um, I'm amazed um, how well the text is composed because um, I think we talked about this uh, in, in a way, but uh, just to, to highlight it again. I think the first half of the text is just him entering this building and describing this absurd costume palace and it's all about these things and it's an early version of a sociology of things if you want and he does this really well and um, one would think that uh, it will continue like this but then uh, all of a sudden in the second half of the text he conveys uh, the hierarchies once he meets other people in this palace. There's this hierarchy with this old acquaintance from Berlin who doesn't want to recognize him. And he understands how low his position is in this whole thing. And then at the end, he even um, has some kind of a postscript when he writes about uh, this question of being in the wrong place and complaining about being in the wrong place. And this uh, probably uh, thought out um, little conversation piece where his friend tells him, don't complain about being in the wrong place. Being in the wrong place is what sets you on the right path to knowledge. You only become knowledgeable in a way once you are in the wrong place. Listen, only what doesn't fit, only what wasn't made for you, only what is too short here or too long there, only what is wrong is right. Really, you have approached your life in a terribly wrong way. 
What have you been pursuing? Only ever what was right, only ever what fits, only ever fulfillment. And now and then, and by chance, you even had the misfortune of finding it. My dear fellow, if you ask me, the time where you found your preferences, what you wanted, were the most erroneous parts of your life. Only the hard times in between were right. The years filled by coincidences, the jobs you cursed. With this, he gestured towards a group of Mexican workers who were laying the road surface in front of the house. Don't you think these people had preferences too? And talents suited for things other than towering roads in South LA of all places? Didn't they feel a vocation for a line of work that fitted like a glove? But they had no choice. These people had to do something they felt no calling for. Something that didn't suit them and simply came their way. In short, the wrong thing. And who knows the world? You or them? So this is, of course, uh, surely speaking about exile, probably um, in, in more ways than just being the exile from Europe who um, had to flee because of the Nazis. But uh, being an outsider in, in so many ways is a major road to the production of knowledge. And it's really interesting and it, uh, it's a great ending for this text. I really love that insight Berndt gives us to sum up such a rich and complicated compilation of ideas. Being an outsider is a major road to the production of knowledge. There's probably hope for all of us in an idea like that. And it's a great ending for this season of the podcast. So usually, this is the point that I would do all the typical ending things that happen at the end of podcast episodes. But on this occasion, I'm going to bring you back in for just one more minute into our postscript discussion, because as is so often the case, there was some lovely unguarded banter that happened just as we were wrapping up. And here, it's so thoroughly Anders. As Claudia will say, I'm bringing it back in as a voiceover. And even though I said we'd turn the recorders off, well, we hadn't quite. You know that it's the point at which you turn the recorders off, right? That you get the best conversations. Like that's the... That's the nature of recording things. And that's the accidents that happen, but you don't have it on camera, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) That's when people become real, maybe. Um, (laughs) Just to throw that grenade in there. But we can always kind of bring it back in as a voiceover. That's, that's, that's true as well. It would be, it'd be in the, you know, the DVD feature would be the bonus material. It'd be like, you know, the um, release it a year later and be like, you know, the making of and, you know, the behind the scenes. I also like the dialectics of it uh, because you have to have a recording or a recorder to be able to switch it off then to have people become real. So the recording device is the precondition for becoming real afterwards, after the recording. Our guests for this second of a two-part episode set were Berend Bosel from the University of Potsdam and Claudia Sandberg from the University of Melbourne. Our huge thanks to both of them for their insights and generosity and to all of our guests who have helped us in unpacking the real. But there's more to come, so remember to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Unpacking the Real is a collaborative research project created by Chris Muller and Helen Wolfenden from Macquarie University and Ben Nickel from the University of Sydney. We are grateful for the support 
of the many organisations who've got behind this project. You can find out more at the Goethe website for Real Is Not Real Enough. Check the link in the show notes.